Bill's going to come in just a few moments here, and uh, he's given me uh, permission to be up here first. And I, and I, well, I didn't. I don't know if I really asked. Right, Bill? I didn't ask, but you gave me the thumbs up anyway. So I want you to know something that I'm very passionate about. And Bill, you can come up and sit in the front seat here. But I want you to know some of the things I'm very, very passionate about. And, and one of the things I'm very, very passionate about is my own walk with Jesus. And, 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 and I can remember the moments of salvation. I can remember that moment of transition in my life. I can remember him setting my feet and pointing me in a different direction. I can remember him setting the, the wind to my sails. I can remember that. And I have never, not that I haven't ebbed and flowed some, not that I haven't struggled, not that I haven't met challenge, but I have, in reality, I have never wanted to go back to the old Ed. I, I, I just never wanted to return. I wanted to always, I'm very passionate about, and I will glean from all kinds of speakers and the Word of God and other people that pray for me and, and other situations and people that speak into my life. But the reality is I'm, in, I'm responsible for my walk with Jesus. And I'm very, very passionate about that. And I'm very, very passionate about my family. My, my, I looked at my, my, the picture that I got just recently of my grandgirls sitting with me. I had to say, God, forgive me, but I think I would, I, I, I think I would kill for them. You know, type of, I'm very passionate about my family. And what else I am passionate about is my call in life. My call in life, we can see in Ephesians, it says this. My call in life says this. It was Jesus who gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers. That part, at least some of those things are my call in life. And I'm very passionate about do, living out my call. My faith and my call, uh, they, they coincide with each other, but they are different. Your call may be nursing or doctoring or, 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 or finance or whatever your call may be. But my call is in here. My call is in the apostleship or, or in the prophetic word or, or in the prophet or in the evangelist or the teacher or the pastor. That's my call. And I'm very passionate about living my call. And then the verse goes on to say this. It says this, to prepare what? To do what? To prepare God's people for works of service. That's what my call does. Prepares people to follow God so, so that they can hear from God and have a chance to follow God. That I can be maybe just ahead of them just a little bit, tromping down the brush just a little bit so that, that you can take the next step with God. I'm very passionate about that. so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in faith and in knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's part of my call, is to equip, is to give opportunity. And when Bill and I have been talking over the last several weeks, to give him an opportunity to share what's on his heart to study the scripture and to go and, and to be really meeting with me and just back and forth and really just allowing, allowing the, 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 the conversation to flow back and forth. It's part of what I do. This is part of what I do. Do you know how many first-time 
things have happened on this platform. New life is a place of first time because where are you going to learn to live your call? If you don't have an opportunity to to maybe, I think maybe teaching or preaching might be my call, where are you going to get an opportunity to do that? I'm telling you where, this platform, which I protect highly. But this is a time when my call says step down and let Bill step up. Because it's his turn to bring the Word of God to us. It's his turn to be the voice of God. I told him yesterday, a couple days ago, I will not let you drown up here. I will come in. Am I expecting you to need me? No, but you've got to know I'm going to sit right there. Not to check you, but to support you. So you can live your call as I live my call. actually spoke in front of anybody the last time was probably about five or six years ago whenever um, the old church I went to went to Africa as a, on a missions trip and I actually be, was able to speak there for a couple minutes in front of an African church and that's really different and uh, but I just want to go ahead and pray real quick and just have God be the voice that you guys hear today, and it's not me. Lord, I just thank you for Pastor Ed for letting me have this opportunity today. Lord, I pray it's your spirit, your voice coming through me today that these people hear, Lord. Just open up all our hearts, all our ears to receive your word. May we get something from you today. Let me pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so a few questions to start off with. Who am I? Who are you? Who does God say that you are? Well, me? I'm a son. I'm a dad. I'm a brother. I'm a husband. And unfortunately, I'm a corrections officer. But... But who does God say that I am? In God, we are sons. How can we be used by God whenever we become a Christian? Why would he choose somebody like us? The thing is, is he chooses us to use us for his glory. But not only am I just a son, God, we're also part of a priesthood. He calls us a royal priesthood. And then he looks at us that are saved through his son, Jesus' blood. He doesn't see us for who we are. He sees us for what his son did for us. 
Now it's him dying on the cross. Without that, we are nothing. But first of all, for, for us to understand, when God chooses us, it, like I said, it's for his glory. It's going to be for his glory, and it's not for us. We're not supposed to boast about it. And whatever God has you doing, it's for his perfect will. It's not going to be for him just to say, okay, here I used you once to go ahead and lead this person to Christ. Now, now I'm done with you, and he throws you away. He doesn't do that. He will use you throughout your life. And Jeremiah 9:23 and 24 say this. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strengths, or the rich boast in their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So even God says, look, you can't boast. This isn't you doing the work. It's me through you. You've got to give me the thanks. You've got to give me the glory. And there are, throughout the Bible, several people that God had used. The first people he used were Adam and Eve. He used Adam and Eve to begin to populate the earth. And he actually used Adam to name all the animals. So if it wasn't for Adam, we wouldn't know what a zebra is, an elephant, an ant. We wouldn't know any of what these animals are if it wasn't for Adam. He used Noah and his sons and his wife and their daughters, and I should say their, his son's wives. He built the ark. He built the ark to preserve life on earth because sin had become so wicked that, first of all, God just wanted to destroy humankind and he wanted to start from the beginning because we were just so wicked. But he found faith in Noah. He said, I'll get him to build that ark. And there are so many people mocking and jeering him going, rain? What is rain? We never even had this before. But Noah had faith, and he built that ark. And lo and behold, 40 days and 40 nights, there were rain. He used Abraham. Abraham is father of the Jewish nation. And Sarah is actually the mother of the Jewish nation. If it wasn't for Abraham and Sarah, there would not be a Jewish nation right now. He called Abraham out. And Abraham, by faith, again, went to where God told him to go. He followed him for every word. Even almost to the point where he had to sacrifice his one and only son. But God allowed Rin to be caught in a thicket so they could sacrifice that ram to God. 
He used Moses and Aaron. Moses did not, was not an eloquent speaker, he said. And he kept on making all these different excuses to not be used. And God said, you know what, you know what Moses? I'm going to give you your brother Aaron. I'm going to have him speak through you. So that way, you guys, you and my people know what's going to happen. And the last per, one of the last people he used was Mary. Mary was very young when she found out that she was giving birth to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and our Savior. She was probably in her early to mid-teens when this happened. And she even went to the Lord and she goes, how, how am I supposed to do this when I haven't even known anybody? And he said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will give birth to my son. And all these people received this through faith. Psalm 115.1 Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to you. Your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. That is why we are here. It's for his faith. It's our faith in him. He has, he has the kindness. He has the grace. He has the love for us. We just got to accept it with faith. And the first example I have is Rahab. What was the most significant way God used her? And then what else is Rahab known for? Well, some of you probably never heard of the story about Rahab. She was known as a prostitute to start with. And what happened was Joshua was going in, and the Lord wanted him to go and take the land of Jericho. So what did he do? He sent two spies into Jericho to spy out the land. Joshua 2, 1 through 3. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent his messengers to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. Well, Rahab at this point, she, she did not know who God was. She's heard of him and she knew something was going on that the, when these two guys came to her house. Again, it took her the faith to know what was going to happen. 
Joshua 2, 8 through 11. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in the country are melting with fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water in the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did in Shilon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed. Because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. If Rahab did not have that faith, we don't know what would have happened. Could Joshua have taken that land? We don't know. But with God's help, and with Rahab trusting God, she knew that, one, they were afraid, and two, that she was losing the land. And again, Joshua 2, 4, 7. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gates, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid up on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone, the gates were shut. So she hides the spies on top of the roof. And after the men of the city had left Jericho and the gates were shut, she waited a few days and then let them down with a scarlet cord. And they made a pact. And she said, look, if you save me and my family, you know, just, just save us from what, what's going to happen. And the two spies told her, you keep the scarlet cord, the scarlet thread in this window, and you bring your family into your house. And we promise that if your family's in this house, they will not die. But if they leave the house, they will die. And their blood will be on their own heads. But if there's a scarlet thread here, and they're here and they die, that blood will be on our hands. Rahab took this by faith. We know Hebrews 11 is called the faith chapter. And honestly, for homework, I'd love to do the whole entire chapter. But I just only picked out a couple of the verses that I thought were going to be good to do. Hebrews 
by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. It was Rahab's faith that saved her and her family. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, why not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so the faith without deeds is dead. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I thank God for that. Because I could drop ever dead right now and my family would know where I'm at. I wouldn't have to suffer anymore. I just thank God every day for him being able to send his son and be willing to do that for us. Not only did he use Rahab, but Rahab, like I said, knew who God was. I have a feeling that after Jericho was destroyed and that her and her family were saved, that she went and even had the faith to accept who God was. And I believe we'll see her in heaven. And that's going to be a story for everybody that's going to want to sit down and hear. I'm sure of it. But there's also somebody else that God used, and it was Gideon. Some of you may know the story about Gideon. One, what kind of man was Gideon? And how did God use Gideon? Well, first of all, Gideon was from one of the weakest clans of the Israelites. Not only was he one of the weakest from the clans of Israel, but even said he was the weakest out of his whole entire family. But here he is, and God's going to use him. He doesn't know how, but he will be used. Judges 6, 1 through 8. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, in caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, they camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way from Gaza and did not spare any living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkey. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels because they would invade the land and ravage it. 
Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Gideon was one of the judges that God had raised for Israel. Israel really went into a vicious cycle. And that cycle was just a circle of a drain. They would go ahead and they'd conquer land. But they would not get rid of the land's idols. So they would start following the land's idols. They became big idolaters. So God would get angry at them. And he would have them oppressed by their enemies. Their enemies would do anything and everything they could to keep Israel down. As we see what the Midianites did. They would steal their crops. They would kill their animals. They, they would just ravage and scare the whole entire land of Israel. The people then would cry out to the Lord. And then God would be willing to save them. And how he would save them was through judges. Israel would follow that judge and be living in peace for as long as that judge reigned and was alive. But as soon as that judge died, the cycle would begin. They'd go into a land, they'd conquer it, they would fall into the idolatry of that land that they went in to possess, and it was just, just one bad cycle. Judges 6, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. So even, even God is sending prophets saying, look, you know, God is telling you, you know, this is what you need to do. And you're not listening. And this is why this is happening. But we also see later on that God calls Gideon a mighty warrior. Again, Gideon told him, look, my clan's the weakest in Israel. And I'm so puny. I'm the weakest in my whole entire family. How are you going to use me? How does this work? But when you think of somebody who's a warrior, somebody who you, is somebody that's super strong, first thing I usually think of is somebody in the military. Somebody that's a sniper. Somebody that has worked his whole entire life with guns and is able to go and do what his superiors are telling him to do. Not only just that, 
but even the guys on the front line who are there giving their life for their country. That could be one of the best sacrifices. And that's why we are free here today in the United States. We can thank the men and women of the military. And think about the Old West. You had the cowboys and Indians. The Indians had their chiefs. And the cowboys, they rode their horses. But they, they had to fight in day in, day out to be able to go to the West and to fight to claim land. So Gideon's calling. God had Gideon to lead Israel in defeating the Midianites. First, he would have to tear down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah pole that was beside it. And this was the god that the Midianites worshipped. And the worst part about it is this altar and this pole was his father's. So the first task God gave Gideon was to go ahead and go ahead, tear down the altar, tear down that pole. And so Gideon, being scared of it being one, his father, but two, being scared of all the townspeople and what they could do to him, he went and got 10 people, and they did it over nightfall. It was supposed to be done during the day, but he went and did it at night out of fear. So in Judges 6, 11 and 12, it says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under an oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abizinorite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and called him a mighty warrior. This was right before the angel had Gideon tear down that pole and to tear down that altar. And Gideon was hiding in a wine press. And I'm sure Tobin knows what threshing wheat's all about. Him being the farmer he is, it's hard work. And it's probably just not good for one person to do, is it, Tobin? But there's Gideon hiding in a wine press so they can keep some of the wheat just so the family doesn't starve, so the Israelites won't starve. kids were all nervous about this. They're like, Dad, how many slides did you do? When I told them the number, like, my son's like, oh, great. We're going to be there until 10 o'clock at night then, aren't we? I said, no. I said, we'll be out on time. And my daughter, who just started at Chuck E. Cheese, said, Dad, you know I have to work at 3 o'clock, and I want to eat before I go to work. I'm like, don't worry, Britt. I said, you'll have time to eat. You'll be at work one time. 
but if you go through the book of Judges in chapter 6, it'll tell you the whole story of Gideon. It tells you him turning down the Asherah poles. It tells you about him tearing down his, the altar to Baal. And it even has him just, just his whole entire story. But we find out in Judges 28-31. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished, with all of Asherah pole beside it, torn down, and a second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. Whenever Gideon was first called, he made a sacrifice to the Lord. And when he sacrificed that animal, the angel of the Lord, which in the Old Testament we, we knew was Jesus before he was first born, he took his rod and just laid it on that animal. And as soon as he did that, the whole entire thing just burned up. It became ashes. So, God went and told him, get a second bull and sacrifice it to me. And this is what he's doing. So now the townspeople asked each other, well, who did this? And they secretly investigated. They were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. So the people of the town demanded, demanded Joash, bring out your son. He must die. Because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd, Are you going to plead Baal's case? Are you trying to serve him? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is God, he can defeat himself. He can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. I think it's pretty bad that these people had to, had to rely on human to save their God. We don't have to rely on any human for, God to, for our God to be saved. He's alive, he's well, and he's living today. He's risen from the grave. He's not dead anymore. You have all these different, different religions that are serving dead gods. You got, you got Buddha. You have, you have Islam. They serve Muhammad, who is still dead today. He'll, he'll come back to life, but that'll be during the great white throne judgment, when every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to fess that Jesus is the Lord of all. So, Gideon now has to get an army to help def defeat the Midianites. 
So Gideon goes and gathers up his army, and he has 32,000 men with his army to start. So he's like, we're going to do this, 32,000 men, we got this. Yeah, they might have thousands and thousands upon thousands of men, but my 32,000 men, with God, we can do this. So God says, look, 32,000, that's, that's too much. You, you can't do this with 32,000. It's, it's too much. You've got to narrow it down. Tell anybody who's scared, just go home, be with your wife and kids, go ahead, farm the land, take care of their animals, whatever they want to do. 22,000 people. Two, 22,000 warriors are afraid. So Gideon says, all right, go ahead, go home. We don't need you. So now there's 10,000 men. So Gideon's thinking, all right, 10,000, we can still do this. We're good. God's like, Gideon, you still have too many men. We, we need to go down to a smaller army. 10,000 men are going to say they did it with their strength. But again, this is for my glory. I'm getting the praise out of this. So we need to do another test. So God has Gideon take the men down to the spring of, of Herod. And he has them do a test on drinking water. How are they going to drink the water? One, are they going to get down on their hands and knees? And I'm too old to do this. But they, they get down on their hands and knees and they put their face in that water and they just, just get that water in there and just start drinking it. And then there's some that get down on their hands and knees and they'll just cup that water. And they drink it. And there's 300 that get down on their, on their knees and cup that water. And God tells Gideon, those 300 men right there, they're your army. Well, now Gideon's a little nervous. So he's like, God, if you're giving me the Midianites, I'm going to test you. And the first test that Gideon has God do is Gideon goes into that wine press, and he lays the fleece down. And he tells God, if you can make this fleece soaking wet with dew and everything else around this dry, I'll trust you. You'll do it. I'll believe in you, and we'll go and we'll defeat the Midianites. Well, the next morning, Gideon wakes up. He picks up the fleece, and he squeezes that fleece and just drains a ton of water out of that fleece. And the thing is, everything else bone dry. Nothing. Gideon's like, okay, there's, there's something weird about this. God, let's do this again. This time, I want the fleece to be dry and make the ground wet with dew. So the next morning, Gideon wakes up. The ground around him is soaking wet with dew. The fleece, bone dry. So again, Gideon, not not strong in faith, not strong 
according to him and his family, and his family not strong with where they are in Israel. But now Gideon has that faith. Gideon is going to rely on God to go and defeat the Midianites. And lo and behold, the Midianites are defeated. And it wasn't really a big battle. Gideon and his 300 men are up on top of a mountain. They scream and holler and throw clay pots. And that's it. The Midianites killed themselves. And that's how the Midianites were defeated by Gideon and his 300 men. God gave him the power because Gideon had the faith knowing that if he relied on God God would defeat these, this horrible enemy and that's what it is for us today we have an enemy Satan and he has a lot of minions and I can tell you this week I was feeling very, very oppressed. And I thank everybody for their prayers for the week, for helping me throughout the week, because anytime I was trying to start working on this, I would just, different things would just come into my mind. You know, I was feeling sick throughout the week. I was feeling really, really tired. All I wanted to do was like try and sleep. But I was praying that, you know, God would go ahead and keep Satan and his demons away from me just for this week, just so I could go ahead and get this ready. So I could go ahead and give you what God put on my heart today. And all the prayers and all the support God did. Well, we asked him. Again, faith. There's another man that God had used. And in Acts, we read, who did God say was a man after his own heart? Thinking about David is correct. Acts says, after removing Saul, he, meaning God, made David their king, Israel. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So David, to start off, was just as a young boy. He was a shepherd. David was one of the was the youngest of Jesse's sons whenever Samuel was sent to anoint a king God already had one pointed out Samuel didn't know so Samuel went to Jesse's oldest boy 
and said, this has got to be it. I mean, he's big, he's strong, he's got to be the next king. God says, you know, you're looking at him on the outward appearance, but me, I look at their heart. He doesn't have the heart to be king. God knows our hearts. He knows what we think before we think it. He knows what we say before we say it. Before we were created in the womb, God knew who we were. First Samuel tells us about David being anointed king. And it's chapter 16. And it's verses 1 through 13. No, I'm not going to read the whole entire the whole entire thing. But if you want to take time to read that be where David be is being anointed king. So as Samuel is going down the line, God's like, no, 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 not him either. And then Samuel's like, okay, Jesse, do you have another son? He said, yeah, but he's, he's out tending my sheep. Samuel's like, go get him. So Jesse sends out his boys to get their brother. And as soon as he walks in, God's like, that's him right there. That's going to be our next king. Anoint him. David was anointed king at that young age. But as David got older, he made some very, very bad mistakes. This fallen race, we all make the bad decisions. Like I said, David made some really bad decisions. He made bad choices. We all do. You tell a lie. When you tell that lie, to tell that lie, you've got to tell another lie. And to get rid of that lie, you tell another lie. And the drain just keeps going down. You've told so many lies that by the time you try to go back to where you were, you don't know which lie you were telling. And you're found out. But David made bad decisions. And it cost him probably some friendships. Caused him to do very bad things. And I won't get into the specifics if I can talk. But you, you guys probably all know the story of David. The different decisions he did and what happened and how it had to end for that one bad decision. But David had a journey. Again, I said it started as he was a shepherd. He was actually able to kill a lion and a bear with his own hands. 
And we can read that First Samuel 17, 20, 34 to 36. First Samuel 17 also tells us about his battle with Goliath. He went and had to fight a giant. And he was sent there by his dad just to see how his brothers were doing in this battle. And this big Philistine comes out. He's mocking God. He's telling them how big of a wimp they are. And you can't even send out a man here to defeat me. David hears this, and he's like, you know, I'll do this. And Goliath looks at him and says, what? This little kid's going to defeat me? I'm a warrior. I've been doing this all my life. But Gideon picks up his sling, and with one stone, kills that giant. Because God gave him that faith, God put it in his heart that he could kill that giant. And he did exactly what he told David he would do in his heart. Later on we find out that, again, Israel is in another battle. And for David to become king, the king has to die. I'll read about that in 1 Samuel 31. It's the third through fifth verse. The fighting grew fierce around Saul. When the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run it through me. But his uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through with, and abuse me. His armor bearer was terrified and wouldn't do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too went and fell on his own sword and died with him. So in this day, Saul's sons were killed. Saul pretty much committed suicide because he was really badly injured and he didn't want the enemy to kill him. And his armor bearer was so scared about him not being able to protect his king that he killed himself also. So... But if you actually read the first five verses, the first three are usually are the ones where he was, where Saul was killed, and then later in Second Samuel five, it is where David is being anointed king. And for lack of time, I'll just go ahead and not read those verses. But, so, we can either be a Rahab, we can be Gideon, or we can be David. Who are you seeing yourself as today? 
Are you Rahab? Do you know who you are? You know who God is, but you don't fully rely on him right now. You're not really trusting him. You're relying on your own self to be able to save yourself. Are you Gideon? Do you think you're so weak God can't use you? We, we've found out that God can use who he thinks is the weakest man in Gideon. It takes that faith. You've got to trust that God will pull you through. Are you David? You start off strong Christian. You're fighting for the Lord. You're going, you're witnessing to, to different people. Then all of a sudden you make that one bad decision. And that decision kind of hurt you a little bit. And all of a sudden you just feel that you, you can't do anything. You feel God's left you because you made that one bad decision. When God says he's never going to leave us or forsake us, We've got to rely on God. Whenever you make that bad decision, repent. Turn away from it. Ask God for forgiveness. It's already there. You just need to pray. And that's what we have to do. You have to have that faith. You don't have that faith, you're really not going to go anywhere. But we see that David went and repented. He had made all the bad decisions. And he made a change of heart. And started living for the Lord again. Most of the Psalms are written by David. In Psalms 51, 10 to 12, he's praying to God here. And he's feeling so alone. Because of what happened. He said, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of the salvation and grant me willing spirit to sustain me, to keep me going to help me keep living for you. Me, I'm like Gideon. I know Christ is my Savior. I accepted him at a young age. I have tried to witness to my friends. There's one guy that I used to carpool with here a while ago tried to witness him to him. I've invited him here to church. But whenever I try to witness, he's changing subjects. He doesn't want to talk about it. He said, well, you know what? My parents drug me to church when I was a kid. I, I really didn't have a good experience. And 
I don't want to do it again. He goes, I don't want, to, I don't want my kids going through that. I prayed for him. But he just keeps on turning it down. And I still pray. I pray right now that he would see that he needs God in his life. There are so many people that we work with. There's family members we have that don't know Jesus Christ. Are we witnessing to them? Are we being the witness God told us to go and be? Me, I'm just, like I said, I'm not really strong at witnessing. And I'm confessing that right now in front of you guys and in front of God. That God gives me stronger heart to be able to witness. We need to go and tell everybody what God has done for us. There's one person that really had a change of heart. He's in the New Testament. That was Saul. Who was Saul? Saul was one of the earliest people that prosecuted the Jews in the early church. He was at the stoning of Stephen. He was the first martyr of the Christian faith. Saul was a horrible man. Not only was he there killing the Jews, but he was, he was beating them. He would take them and drag them off to jail just because they were a Christian. Today, there are Christians being persecuted thankfully not here in the United States thankfully right here we have the freedom to be able to come here and worship and to praise God and to serve him in the open and not worry about being killed worry about being beaten or put in prison but there's Christians all over the world that if they're caught witnessing, they're murdered, they're beaten, they're thrown in jail. And I'm afraid the way the United States is going today, how everything is just going so wicked, and how everything that is good now is called evil. Now, everything evil is being called good and being normalized. I'm afraid there's going to come a day here that we as Christians are going to be persecuted. And that's not what our fathers fought for to fight for this country. 
But I, like I said, I can see how bad everything's getting. And honestly, I'm, I'm praying Jesus comes before it gets too bad. I mean, look at how all these fires are. You got fires in Canada, fires in Hawaii, fires all over the place. And if you're not on fire, you have a flood. There's floods popping up all over the place. And then if you're not in a fire or in a flood, you're having a drought. Crops aren't growing. Food shortages are starting because of all the damage. Everything is getting bad. So, Paul is persecuting the early church and says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters in the, to the synagogue in Damascus so that he found any there who belonged to the way, or Jesus, whether men or women, he might be able to take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. This is right before Paul had his conversion on the road to Damascus. He went and got the letters. He was going to go to Damascus. And any Jew or any Christian he found, he was going to go and take them off to jail. But we know that on that way, in Acts 9, we see that as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice to him say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what, to, what you must do. Saul went his way to go and persecute more Christians. And the thing was, is Saul was actually a Jew. He was persecuting his own people. Not only was he a Jew, but he was a Roman citizen. So later in life, whenever he started testifying of what Jesus had done for him, they threatened to throw him in jail, and he would throw his Roman citizen card down you got to give me a, free, a, a fair trial. You, you just can't go ahead and do this. So as we see, Saul gets, goes and turns, his name gets turned into Paul. But actually... Saul and Paul were the same people. It was the same name. He didn't come, become the great apostle overnight. It took years and years of dedication 
for him to be able to study the Word of God, to be able to listen to God, and to be able to see who God really was. But we find out later that when he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he gets that conversion, he starts living for Jesus then and there. He starts following the way. Paul, be- God has Paul become the apostle to the Gentiles because the Jews kept on refusing. Because the Jews here started started refusing what the prophets and what the other people were saying to them. So, because of God having Paul become the apostle to the Gentiles, we now have the word of God with us. 1 Timothy 12, 15 and 16. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of who I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. This is Paul describing himself to Timothy, who here is a young pastor. Paul is describing himself to Timothy before his conversion to Christianity. And he says here in 1 Timothy uh, 1, starting in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts you on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit <clears throat> that we were too were weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. 
I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord, Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor, under King Aretas, had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Paul was beaten several times. To be scourged, they had what they called a cat of nine tails. It had glass, it had bones, it had different shards of anything. And they'd have you tied up and placed over a rock. And the Roman guards would take that whip and just whip you, and as soon as they'd pull that back, that glass, the bones, anything that, was, that they had tied onto that would just grab that flesh and just rip it right off of you to expose your muscle, expose bones. And they said that if, you were, if, if this happened 40 times, they would declare them legally dead. So 39 was the most they were able to do this. Jesus had this done to him for us. He was flogged on the night that Judas betrayed him. Second Corinthians 11 goes on to say, in verses 25 to 29, I, I messed that up, sorry. I, I skipped that slide. Sorry, Tracy. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open seas. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, and in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at the sea and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and that I do not feel weak? Who is led in sin, and I do not burn inwardly.
Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn was. But Paul prayed to God and asked for that flesh, that thorn in his flesh to be taken away. And God told him now, he goes, in that weakness, you will be made strong. Paul goes to Corinth and Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, he starts, a chap- he starts off chapter 15 reminding the church of the gospel. <clears throat> there are three different parts. <coughs> Excuse me. There are three different parts to the chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. The first or 11 is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you, read, if you read verses 12 to 34, it's the resurrection of the dead. And if you read 35 to the end of the chapter, 58, it's the resurrection of the body. What is First <clears throat> Corinthians 15, the first four verses are known as the gospel. And I watch different prophecy teachers. One I watch a whole lot is J.D. Farag. <clears throat> He's actually a preacher that's in Hawaii. He does prophecy updates. He does regular messages. And when he does his prophecy updates, he always concludes with the ABCs of salvation. And he says you can find the gospel in the first four verses of Corinthians 15. It says, Now, brethren and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have, been take, which have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I have preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I have received, I have passed on to you. First importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And with that, we can continue and say that we know someday he's coming back for his church. We know someday soon. We don't know when. But God tells us in his Bible that he's going to come back and redeem us and take us home to be with him. Growing up, when I received Jesus Christ as my Lord, I did it through the Romans Road. And Romans Road was Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, 5, 8, 10, 9 and 10, and Romans 5.1. Like I said, knowing that I went through Romans Road, 
and watching different people on YouTube, different prophecy teachers, I can go to 1 Corinthians 15 and be able to lead somebody through Christ that way too, saying if you have the faith that Jesus Christ died and buried and rose again, you too can be saved. Okay. Like one too much. feeling compelled just to step up and say you know what the reality is that whether you're a Rahab and you didn't get it right up to this moment whether you're a David and you walked with Christ and you got in the wrong path whether you, and, 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 and whether you're a, a Paul who thought he was going right and finally found out that he wasn't whether, 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 no matter who you are today that he is in the market of using people because he loves you. If you're a Gideon and you think, I'm, I'm nothing, I'm too weak, I'm too small, it, it doesn't, that, you, we need to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth and the things inside of you that's limiting you will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And, 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 as, and as, as Bill has brought us to the conclusion here, saying, reach out, touch Jesus. Touch him. Let him redeem you because he loves you and let him invite you into his kingdom work because he loves you. Bill, thank you. Thank you for bringing that reality to us today. So, New Life, stand with us today. Father, I thank you for that reminder today that maybe we're just a young, a young lady named Mary. Maybe we're an old guy named Abraham. Maybe we're a guy of the only one at the workplace named Noah. Maybe we're a guy like Moses that don't think he can do it. Maybe we're a guy like Gideon that thinks we're too small and weak. Maybe we're like a Rahab who's said, I haven't got anything right up to this moment in my life. Maybe we're a guy like David who said, I got it all right when I was young, but something has won awry. And Lord, but the beautiful part of it is that Bill's stories and Bill's accounts and his preaching this morning has brought every one of them, the difference, the, the, the commonality is that they looked at you, God, and you used them. You invited them into your kingdom work. And so, Father, I'm asking that you would invite us into your kingdom work and, Father, that we would know that it's you, and we would not worry of if we ever got it right, or we would worry that we are ever too small, or worried that we would never get it right, because you will direct us, God, and I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Have an amazing day.